Hello everyone, I'm Angela and welcome back to my channel. Welcome to the live stream, I should say. How are you guys? Oh, I can see you. How are you doing? Hi, David. Can you? Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Hello, Hello, Ron. Ron. Hello, Hello Carl. So the idea is to cover different philosophers and or philosophical views, which basically are underpinning and underlie the practice of magic and different esoteric traditions. Uh, wait a second, uh, maybe I need to... Um, Oh, uh, do you still hear the echo? Give, Give me a second. Let me know if you can hear me better, guys. The issue is that there is a lot of delay between when I say things and when you see them. So the feedback I get you from um, from the chat comes like a minute or so <laughs> later than, um, yeah. Uh, so do let me know in the chat if you're hearing me okay now. Okay. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for bearing with me because this is, you know, uh, quite new for me. So uh, I need to <laughs> experiment a bit. So yeah, as I was saying, um, I'm happy to announce that the present one will mark uh, the beginning of a series of live stream lectures on the philosophical underpinning of esoteric and occult practices. 
So the idea is to cover the different philosophers and or um, philosophical views to then analyze how can they inform or enrich our understanding of endeavors involving magic. So I'm going to switch between talking about the topic and reading your questions and answering them, of course. So please, when you do have a question as opposed to a comment, begin your message by typing question in uh, capital letters so that I can, so that it sticks out and I can see immediately that it is in fact a question. So um, all the notes of the live lectures will be available for my patrons of initiate level and above tiers. Uh, yeah, and we will also have further discussion in the inner symposium. Um, so this series of live lectures will try to uncover the paradigms, worldviews and theoretical underpinning which uphold or relate to different magical traditions whether it be paganism, wicca, ceremonial magic, left-hand paths, shamanism, and so on. So we are going to start today by talking about worldviews. I will first explain what a worldview is, why is it important for us, to then move on to analyzing the worldviews of different magical or occult traditions. So... Let's now move on to the PowerPoint. Hopefully this works. Can you see it? <laughs> Hopefully you can. So uh, let's start by addressing what is a worldview. Uh, I'm using the word worldview because it's easier, I guess, to um, to, to catch and understand, but another term that I really relate to the idea of worldview is that of paradigm. So uh, the worldview um, basically is a notion that signifies both an inner conviction and an outlook on the world. So I'd say that the worldview, as we are going to define it in uh, today's lecture, is both a view of the world and also the premises, the untold, unspoken, underlying premises, which uh, uphold that specific view. So yeah, basically it is also the paradigm, or in some cases the paradigms, plural, underlying our perception and interpretation of reality. So, uh, what is a worldview? It is pre-assumptions, as I was saying, upholding our perception of the world. Um, as you may know, um, the philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, used to say uh, in his philosophy that we are not really able to perceive reality directly as it is, but everything is filtered through certain categories because our minds function as a filter and we never know what is the reality um, 
beside our perception of it. And in Kantian terms, this would be the difference between the noumenon, which is the reality in and of itself, which we cannot perceive directly, and the phenomenon, which is the only reality that we are able to access, which is a filtered reality. So the filters we have are determined by, by our senses, but also by our mind, by our mental perceptions, mental convictions, and the mental constructions we have. And a framework of uh, these mental constructions is um, basically a paradigm or a worldview. So we all endorse some underlying worldview or paradigm, whether we are aware of it or not. And I will tell you why it is important for us to acknowledge uh, the hidden uh, worldviews and paradigms that we uphold. So some of these worldviews are society-based. So for example, I will give you an example of a worldview or a paradigm. The fact that we have contracts, you know, the legal contract, underlies the idea that there is an enduring self. So if I sign a, con a contract today and this contract will be va valuable, valid in 20 years time, this underlies the, the conception, the idea that I will be the same person throughout these 20 years. And I don't think that this is something that um, is, you know, it's just a given. It is a, a construction that we have and that underlies the fact that we uh, have, we all agree upon the fact that we have this enduring self and hence a, a legal contract will be valid over time. Some worldviews or paradigms are individually chosen. So, for example, personal stances and our personal um, filters whereby we perceive uh, the reality. And some of these are, of course, also the metaphysical beliefs. Uh, I see I have questions. Yes, Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant said that. I'm sorry, but I'm um, I'm having difficulties seeing the chat. Okay. Yes, Immanuel Kant, which is spelled with an I, uh, James. Thanks for asking. Okay. So let's see now. Um, a, definition of a worldview based on a peer-reviewed article. Of course, all the references uh, are found in the info box. I also have a slide with all the references, but yeah, uh, you will find them in the info box as usual. So um, a worldview is a cultured, which means related to our culture, not an innate thing, a cultured set of elements orienting conscious and unconscious behavior by means of signs, signifiers, abstraction, interpretation, 
moral ethical values, group individual identity and commitment. So these are all elements that make up a worldview. So we have size signifiers, as I said, for example, uh, in the example of the contract, it is a sign, a semantic sign of our idea of an enduring self. Um, then we have abstraction interpretation because our worldview, our paradigm, affects how we interpret the signals coming from the outside world. And we have also moral and ethical values which are determined by the way we interpret and understand and make up our reality. And the way we make up our reality is <laughs> basically essentially determined by the worldview we consciously or unconsciously endorse. Also, we have a group or individual identity, which is often linked to a specific worldview or a specific paradigm. You can find that people from the same nationality or the same political party or um, the same religion may endorse a very similar perception of the world. And uh, bear in mind that a worldview is not just a chosen way of seeing the world. It is, um, as I was saying, like the, the premises, the filters we have whereby we perceive the reality. And then, of course, there is commitment, and this can be a voluntary commitment or even, um, yeah, an unconscious commitment when we endorse a view of the world, a perception of the world that was given uh, to us from birth. So, why does it matter? Why is, it, why is it important for us to understand the paradigms and worldviews which underlie our perception of reality and our understanding of the world? First, because knowledge is power. <laughs> uh, you can act on what, on what you see and acknowledge, and you are actually acted by what you cannot see nor acknowledge. So knowledge is power to change things, I'd say. When you know something and you understand it and you acknowledge that it is there, then you have the choice of whether you want to stick with it or not. Whereas if that aspect of your understanding of reality remains unacknowledged, you will never really have a chance because you are just enslaved by it. Uh, you're just so immersed and so ingrained in that view of the world that you become the filter you could have chosen to modify and amend. So, yeah, as Alexander and Seidman said, uh, said um, everyone is a philosopher, though in his own way and unconsciously since even in the slightest manifestation of any intellectual activity, there is a contained specific conception of the world. Every single thought we have 
underlies a specific a specific conception of the world and acknowledging which one it is is essential because then we have the choice to either endorse it or discard it or modify it so as i wrote in one of my publications uh, what makes us good philosophers so the premise here is that we are all philosophers because we are all thinking within a philosophical system whether we acknowledge it or we are just endorsing it unconsciously so what makes us then good philosopher good philosophers instead of poor ones is the ability to acknowledge the system of thought underlying mental activities to then gain power over said system as opposed to being enslaved to its unconscious and unacknowledged effects. So let me see if there are questions so far. And um, bear in mind that there is a delay between when I say things and when you write uh, and when you um, get the image and, and my words. So I may be reading comments uh, which are not uh, from now but from two minutes ago. <laughs> Oh, James said, wow, I need to read more Immanuel Kant. Got it. <laughs> yes, it is, I think, one of my favorite philosophers. Um, and I think uh, he is also essential in the turning point which happened uh, in the 20th century. Uh, and what we can see even now with, the, with this shift from, um, you know, seeing the reality as something that is out there for us to perceive and understanding our role in the interpretation of, uh, of the reality. Yeah, I see that you are. Uh, Ron says, paradigm is probably the best word to illustrate a magical belief. Yeah, I'd say that it is um, a very good word to describe what underlies those beliefs because as we will see later in the lecture i will give you examples from different magical traditions uh, to show you how those different traditions even though they all practice magic they have different worldviews or paradigms so moving on So now um, the question, <laughs> this is a question that I think I got um, a few times in the comments and many times in person, because as you may tell, I'm kind of a, I like to defend magic and magical practices. <laughs> so um, there once a few years ago, I had a two hours long discussion with my professor, my, the former supervisor at the university in Italy uh, where uh, I got my degrees. And I really admire him uh, and I love having discussions with him because they are always very 
engaging and profound. And in this specific case, um, we had a debate over magic. And he is um, in the study of Buddhism and Vedanta. So he has the, the idea that um, even from the Buddhist canon and from the Vedas, that you can only reach the enlightenment, which is, you know, the spiritual awakening by um, abandoning the ego. So what he was saying is that magic is a way of reinforcing the ego. And so it uh, keeps you from uh, reaching the enlightenment. And so he uh, gave me this example, this story from the, um, uh, from the Buddhist canon, where the Buddha encounters uh, a sorcerer on uh, his way. <laughs> he encounters the sorcerer. And the sorcerer said, it took me 30 years to finally walk on water. And Buddha replied, uh, well, you could have just taken a boat. And this was um, told by my professor uh, to say that um, it was a way of saying that magic is not something that really transforms you, but um, you can achieve those things with other means. And uh, in the meantime, you are keeping yourself away from the goal of reaching the enlightenment. What I replied to that so, uh, was that uh, what that sorcerer achieved in his endeavor was not just walking on the, on the water to, to cross the river. What he achieved was a unity with the elements, which allowed him to become water to become earth, to become air, and to become fire, to become at one with the elements so much that he could overcome certain physical rules. So in my personal view, honestly, and I think that this can be found quite clearly in some magical practices, Magic is not just a way, it's not a way, it, of course it depends on the person and it depends on the tradition, but it can be, I argue, a way of um, abandoning the ego, uh, dissolving the ego, or however you want to describe uh, the process of enlightenment. Because if you are at one with, the, with connection, you become connected to everything so much that you can enter the fabric of reality to reshape it, then I'd say that perhaps the separation between yourself and the outside world is not as stark any, anymore, is it? Let me see if there are questions or comments now. Oh, hi, Dave. Nice to see you. Yes, Ron. Uh, Gnosis runs along along these lines, especially how Gnosis is conceptualized in Chaos Magic. I think that I should make another video on Chaos Magic to address uh, some philosophical concept that I wasn't quite able to cover at length in my first video. But there are so many things that I always want to say in each and every video that, yeah. Hi, Cipriano. 
Uh, Ram says, I fully believe this, hence the practice of meditation and ritual. Yes, and also uh, meditation is also quite practiced among um, esoteric practitioners um, as well. So, for example, in Magic by Lester Crowley, the first half of the book is um, mainly about yogic practices to um, to enhance the, our mental abilities. So, yeah, I will move a bit further. Blue Seal says, I dreamed today I, I can also cite my own papers. <laughs> that, that was a bit self-referential, I have to admit it, but <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> At least there was just one self-reference. Uh, Bartolome says, which chaos magic? Do you mean that there are different strands of chaos magic? Yes, Ron, concentration and focus. That is what you achieve by certain yogic um, practices. I also need to make a video on tantrism and magic because there are, yeah, there is a lot to say about it as well. But as I said, <laughs> I, I really had to do this <laughs> full time to cover. And even in that case, maybe I, I wouldn't be able to cover every single thing. But we've got time, don't we? So let's now move on to an example. So let's use the example of atheism. So what is the paradigm or the worldview which underlies or underpins the atheist um, conception of the world? So of course, as I also put on my slides, these are generalization. These are all generalizations and will of course not apply to each and every member. Uh, but it is a way of understanding uh, that specific category at large and it is a, yeah it is for explanatory purposes mainly so in atheism we, what we normally find is the cartesian dualism so in case you're not familiar with it descartes rene descartes um theorized that uh, something that actually Roots in our Western understanding of the world, which is the stark separation between the physical world, what we can touch and measure, and the metaphysical world, which is everything that cannot be measured, touched, and um, you know perceived through our five senses. So everything that goes beyond the reach of our five senses falls into the realm of the metaphysical world. So what then happened later on with positivism was that positivism uh, took this idea of a dualistic reality where there is something solid 
and separate and measurable and something which is not solid, abstract and unmeasurable. And uh, positivism had uh, started this outlook on reality where only what is measurable and physical, only what belongs in Cartesian terms to the physical world is valuable. And then a step forward, which we find in scientism, which is the belief that science can answer all questions, um, even about the metaphysical world, is that only what is physical and measurable and touchable um, and verifiable through the five senses is real, is and is true, is ontologically existent. Uh, ontology in philosophy is the is a branch of philosophy which studies what exists. So when we say that something is ontologically real, it means that it actually exists. And of course, across different philosophers and different views, you can have that certain things are believed to exist, whereas other things are not believed to exist. So what happened with positivism onwards, and even with uh, some degenerations, I'd say, of um, a positivist outlook on reality, is that only what is physical and uh, perceivable through the five senses is believed to ontologically exist, hence be real. So what also happens here is the so-called disenchantment of the world, which, is, which was theorized by Max Weber. And it means that basically the physical world is not infused with consciousness or um, any sort of vitality. So in our dominant worldview, we don't usually think that a mouse or a table is live and sentient. So we can hurt a table, but we cannot hurt a person. The very fact that we create a distinction in our actions uh, like that underlies our idea that the table is not a living being and the, another, another person is a living being. Even uh, when, I don't know, I, I'm not, I don't want to open a debate about vegetarianism or veganism, but uh, just to analyze the underlying worldview, for example, um, a vegan who won't eat um, animal products because they are uh, living beings and not for other reasons, because there are, of course, uh, other reasons to be vegan as well. But if they don't eat animal products because they are living beings, this also implies that they believe that vegetables are not living beings. So every choice that we make underlies a certain understanding of reality, a certain construction of reality. So in this case, as I said, in an atheistic worldview, we have a world of disenchantment. Our, what we see in the manifested world is not infused with power, life, consciousness. 
it is something, um, it, it is a set of inanimate elements with which we can interact, but uh, to a certain extent. So we cannot really have a communication like the one we have with our partner or a friend uh, with, with a plant, according to this uh, worldview. So now let, let me see if there are questions or comments. So question. Uh, You will cover the Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia, the Middle East. Uh, I, I don't understand your question. Um, well, concentration and focus do play a role in magic, right? So to me, it makes sense for meditation to become part of someone's personal practice, part of their toolkit, I guess. Yes, and this is something that is found across different esoteric and occult practices. James says, I would appreciate a video about Tantra from an academic perspective. Of course, James, you will, you're gonna see that one coming. Um, okay. So now, I do have a few questions for you. I'm afraid that I might have to wait a minute because I, I can see that there is a delay between um, me saying things and you uh, getting them uh, on the live stream. But yeah, the questions I'd like to ask you uh, are, what's the worldview underlying magical practices in your opinion? Is there one or multiple ones? And is it tradition dependent or is there a main worldview which underlies magic? Let me know. I'm eagerly waiting for your comments in the chat. So Atomic419 says, wasn't the sorcerer displaying a city which Hindu and Buddhist yogis have also been said to attain? I don't understand Buddha's criticism. Uh, well, you don't have to confuse uh, Hinduism with Buddhism because they are quite different. Um, and um, yeah, Buddha actually didn't even endorse the reincarnation, the idea of reincarnation, which is core in Hindu traditions, which I prefer as a definition to Hinduism. So, Andrew says, for me, it is animism, but there are several, and tradition is an evolving thing. 
yes, many people, many perspectives. I would say that primary worldview of magic is mind affects matter, mind over matter. Yes, that's very interesting to highlight, James. Nocturnia Obscura says, hey, just tuned in. The question uh, is, um, what's the worldview underlying, the paradigm underlying magical practices? Oh, hi. <laughs> nice to hear that you are from Ecuador. I believe there are many uh, differing views and traditions in magic. Many paths exist that allow a personal change. Castaneda spoke of non-ordinary reality versus ordinary reality and used psychotropic plants to get the, uh, to altered states. Yes, and we will cover actually uh, this just in a minute because um, I will uh, shortly cover a few traditions which involve some kind of magical practice and analyze uh, what is their worldview which upholds those practices. I'd say worldview evolves as human cultures and traditions evolve and even die out. I will agree with mind affects matter. Um, magic needs no specific tradition, but having a structure helps a lot. Thank you, Nocturnia. So I guess we we're now moving on to analyzing, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> as I said, now we are going to analyze a few traditions and uh, how uh, and what their worldviews are. Um, it is, I guess, a way to do like a, it is a philosophical exercise for you to um, destructure and analyze certain magical traditions but also a way for me to show you how different practices and traditions even though they involve they all involve magic they may have a starting point or premises or an understanding of the world which um, <laughs> of course is related to how they construct their realities and hence how they construct our understanding of magic and how it works on their construction of reality. I hope this makes sense. So in transcultural shamanism, and I define not just me, but uh, in literature, transcultural shamanism uh, is used to define those practices of shamanism which are not related to one specific culture or tradition, but they tend to be um, based um, mainly on techniques and they are practiced across different cultures. So some of these traditions may be of Western descent. So for example, core shamanism is a Western American born uh, tradition and it is not related to the American culture, but it is a set of techniques which are meant to, to be practiced 
even in different countries and different cultures. Also, another type of transcultural shamanism are the imported shamanisms. So, for example, um, me as an Italian in Italy practicing Lakota or Siberian shamanism, of course, reinterpreting it according, according to my <clears throat> belief system as an Italian and to my structure and context as an Italian living in Italy or living in the UK. Uh, so it is also a translation and readaptation of um, other imported uh, shamanic traditions. So when we talk about transcultural shamanism, we have as a worldview first a binary understanding of reality. In this case, it's not physical versus metaphysical as we have with Descartes but we have the ordinary versus the non-ordinary reality. So the ordinary reality is the one we live in on the everyday basis, whereas the non-ordinary reality is the one we enter by altering our state of consciousness, whether it be through the use of psychotropic drugs or through the um, uh, monotonous sound of drums and rattles. Also, there is a threefold cosmology because in transcultural shamanism we find the idea that the non-ordinary reality is made up of three levels or three worlds: the lower world, the middle world, and the upper world. And you can travel to these three worlds through shamanic journey, and uh, in each of these worlds you will find something different and they will uh, be accessed usually for different purposes. Also, a key aspect which has been highlighted in um, quite a few um, texts in literature, and I'm very familiar with this topic because uh, it's part of my doctoral research, is that techniques outweigh cultural belonging. So in transcultural shamanisms, you kind of have the idea that what really matters is the technique and whether you practice a ritual in Italy or in an African country or in Ecuador um, or in the US, you're supposed to get the same exact results. So it doesn't matter the performer, it doesn't matter it won't matter the astrological conditions, whether the moon is full or uh, is waning. Uh, what, just, what, what matters is truly uh, to them the technique. And this is also another way of uh, perceiving and understanding uh, both the reality and as a consequence, how magic or a magical practice can be related to uh, this construction of reality. Then we have chaos magic. And um, yes, I, I can, I guess, include also some left-hand traditions. As I said, these are generalizations, so it won't, of course, apply to each and every person and each and every tradition, but it is a way of understanding this tradition uh, at large. So in Chaos Magic, as we also addressed in the video on Nietzsche and the left-hand path, 
there is we find something which is called active nihilism so active nihilism means that nothing in the world has a real existence and um, this is um, a view that Nietzsche endorsed and it is the idea, nihilism says that nothing in the world is, is real, basically nothing is real. But the active nihilism is saying nothing is real and hence I will make my reality, I will make what is real to me and what is real to me at any given point is real because there is no absolute reality. Um, also, there is an instrumental ontology. As we said, ontology is the, is the branch of philosophy which, um, which tackles whether things exist or not. So an instrumental ontology in chaos magic means that uh, what exists to a chaos magician and some people following the, um, some of the practitioners of the of left hand path. What exists is, what, what is deemed to exist is instrumental. So if it serves my purpose, then it exists. If I need a deity to battle uh, my inner demons, I can um, instrumentally decide that Buffy, the vampire slayer exists as a as a deity to help me with this uh, specific intent and purpose so this is an instrumental ontology a way of um, deciding what actually exists on the basis of how can it serve me how can and that uh, reality that thing put into existence by myself can serve any given a purpose that I may have. Also, there is a rejection of uh, Aristotelian logic. As um, you may know, if you have watched my video on chaos magic, um, the, the foundation, well, the foundation of our logic in the uh, Western world is Aristotle. And one of the foundational elements in Aristotelian logic is the um, uh, is the law of the excluded middle and the law of non-contradiction. So the law, the law of non-contradiction means that things cannot contradict themselves. So if I say that A is A, I cannot also say that A is B. And if A is A, it means that A is different from B. So this is a principle, the principle of non-contradiction, is something that chaos magicians and uh, some practitioners of the left-hand path won't accept. So they actually embrace contradictions and they want to shatter completely uh, the Aristotelian logic and um, uh, our perception of the world through the rules of grammar and logic because they deem them to be a chain to a truer better, higher understanding of what reality is beyond the rules created by grammar and language which uh, are not necessarily also the rules of reality. Let me now see if there are comments or questions. I have to switch a window. <laughs> so. 
Oh, hi Nadia, nice to see you in the chat. So, Ram says subjective reality affecting objective reality. Right, Ron, as above, so below. <laughs> yes, uh, Hal Tuberman says there are no facts, only interpretations by Nietzsche. As within, so without. All hail Buffy, Buffy, <laughs> always my hero. <laughs> I find it interesting and possible that we can basically create a deity by believing in it, that the mind can create beings or cosmos, well, in a smaller scale, of course. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, Mokternia. Uh, I'd love to see more about that cults around the world. Hmm. That makes me think that I might interview my friend and scholar Jennifer Razel because she's doing her PhD on uh, death barrels and yeah, she's quite knowledgeable about death cults. Okay, I guess I can move on. Are there any questions? Is everything clear so far? Uh, if you want me to expand more on um, one element or another, please do let me know. So let's move on then. So now let's cover Wicca. And here I'm, I have put in brackets eclectic Wicca um, because, um, yeah, when it comes to more, the more ceremonial uh, Wicca, which, um, you know, like the Gardnerian or the Alexandrian Wicca, uh, things may be uh, a bit different. So, so yeah, in Wicca, what we find, for example, oh, uh, I think that I have questions. I'm sorry, but it's really difficult because there is a delay of about a minute. So, you are actually writing to past Angela. I come back from the future answer your questions. So do you consider the left-hand path philosophy damaging and too egocentrical, Nocturnia asks. Honestly, I, I don't pass judgment uh, on magical traditions. I just find them fascinating to analyze and um, they tend to be self-centered for sure. 
but that is not a judgment on my part. They uh, have as one of, the, of their aims the self-deification, so to become a god themselves, to, to ascend to a higher human state. But even in that case, we find that idea in Nietzsche as well, um, the idea of the Ubermensch and uh, uh, over-human. So, um, yeah, they, they tend to be self-centered in that they want to um, ascend to a higher state, but I, I wouldn't pass judgment on uh, because of that. I think it is just a way of going about uh, their spiritual practice. So Ariel says, everything is clear. Thank you. Okay, so I guess I can move on. So as I was saying uh, with Wicca, uh, if we want to analyze the worldview or paradigm underlying the Wiccan belief system, we have in this case a re-enchantment of the world. As we said uh, with the atheist, atheistic, atheist, it's difficult for me to say, but yeah, in atheism, we have the um, we have a disenchantment of the world, and even in our dominant theoretical framework, we have the idea that objects and our surroundings is made of inanimate elements, inanimate objects. In Wicca, we have a re-enchantment of the world. Um, this also occurs in shamanism, of course, and in other uh, practices involving magic. But in this case, I'm uh, talking about uh, Wicca for explanatory purposes. So we have a re-enchantment of the world. The world and the elements, the sun and the moon, they are not just planets. They hold some divine elements. They bear divine elements. And even uh, the water and the fire, everything which especially belongs to the natural worlds tend to be in, considered to be infused with uh, divinity again so it is not inanimate anymore from an ethical point of view because as we said uh, at the beginning of the lecture at the live stream however we want to call this um, there are some components to the worldview which also affect and in some cases are affected by an ethical understanding of the world. Uh, and in this case with Wicca, you have a bi-directional action. So an action that goes both ways. So if I do something, it is going to return to me. This is shown by the law of three, which uh, is in Wicca. So the idea that everything you do both good or bad is going to come back at you three full times and this, the, the very fact that the very belief in this law underlies the idea that every action has a bi-directional component so that if I do something it is it, it doesn't end there 
it is going to come back somehow. And so there is this movement that is perceived as an underlying aspect to each and every action that a human being um, engages with. Also, there is a dualistic or duotheistic view of the divine, because in, in Wicca there is a goddess and a god, and uh, there is um, a, a lot of uh, their narrative is, um, uh, is shaped around the idea of, um, a, I don't want to really call it dualism in and of itself, because it's not a dualism like the Cartesian dualism, it's not a stark distinction between things. It is more a dual perception of things. So there is a lot of narrative around the male and the female principle, the um, projective and the receptive, the goddess and the god, that all the gods are one god and all the goddesses are one goddess. So there is this uh, kind of dual, duotheistic, uh, perception of the deity. So this is, of course, another uh, aspect of the worldview which underlies Wicca, and it uh, it will, of course, affect how they uh, interact and practice magic. Then we have the law of attraction, which uh, some people um, have it fall under the umbrella of the New Age movement. I wouldn't call it that just because now um, New Age has become a derogatory term, although um, I think it's actually still a pretty useful category, which scholars use in a non-judgmental way. And uh, yeah, the law of attraction has been popularized by uh, the movie The Secret. And it is, uh, it, it is interesting because it says that everything that you think uh, that, that you that like attracts the like so if you think uh, certain kind of thoughts if you visualize uh, certain things they will be attracted to your life of course it's much more complex than that but i don't want to uh, spend lots of time discussing what the law of attraction is although i, I may make a, a future video on it so what is the underlying assumptions, the underlying paradigm to the idea that the law of attraction works, that thinking something will attract the like of it in your physical world and your physical reality. The first paradigm, the first worldview is a philosophical idealism. Um, I'm told that I have questions, so I'm just going to stop a moment to answer your questions. Uh, so, Nocturnia says, I've read that Wicca is basically pantheistic, that God and Goddess is the two aspects of one, the unity, is this accurate or false? It is, it is true. Uh, as I said, it is a, a duotheism. A duotheism. Um, well, actually, thank you, Nocturnia, for um, 
for uh, asking this question because he, it gives me the chance to expand more on what I said and it actually makes me realize that um, it could have been misinterpreted because I didn't uh, explain it quite properly, I don't think. So, uh, yes, in Wicca, uh, it is a form of pantheism which uh, also underlies a dualistic uh, perception of this pantheism. So, for example, in pantheism, everything is believed to be divine, but um, in Wicca, there is the adjunct thing that uh, everything is divine in nature, and this di divinity can be perceived as either female or male, as either projective energy or receptive energy, for example, even the four elements, air, fire, water, and earth, they um, tend to be divided between feminine and masculine elements. So um, there is this kind of dual perception of this, uh, of course, as you uh, right, rightfully say, say um, pantheistic um, reality. So yes, uh, that is correct. Nocturnia. Uh, let me see if I have other questions. So, Air123 asks, um, where did the rule of three come from? In traditional witchcraft, there is no such idea and, and the individual practitioner is responsible for her, his her actions. Um, it comes from the Wiccan read. And it is, um, um, yeah, it is um, kind of a, a for a poem. It is a poem that um, contains um, aspects of the belief system of Wiccans. Uh, one of which is the the law of three. Um, atomic. 419 asks, maybe uh, have a Q&A after each session, that way it doesn't disrupt the flow. Just a suggestion, yeah, uh, I'm actually experimenting with these live streams, so I will see what works best, but yeah, actually that might be a good idea to wait until the end to uh, reply to the questions, especially since I realize that there is quite a big delay between uh, what I say and what you see. And so um, I would have to wait like a couple of minutes to, to see what questions you are, uh, you are asking each and every time. So going back to the slides, um, going back to the slides, yeah, as I was saying, the law of attraction is the belief that uh, the like attracts the like and that thinking certain the the content of your thoughts will attract in your physical reality whatever it is that you are um, thinking of so what this idea underlies is uh, a philosophical idealism so idealism in philosophy is the conception that consciousness outweighs the physical world so to speak so that the, the consciousness, the mind, has, um, is the forerunner in the perception and construction of reality. 
So it is, um, of course, it is. It would be simplistic to say that it is just it is a form of idealism, um, because in in the law of attraction they also have the idea that mind. In some forms of idealism, you do have the idea that the, everything comes from the consciousness, everything comes from the mind. In the law of attraction, they also have, they don't have it just as a metaphysical perception of the world, saying that everything that is in front of me is, um, is uh, actually a, a projection of my own consciousness. In their case, there is also the, the step forward of uh, having the ability to consciously reshape it. So you may have forms of idealism that do say everything is uh, created by the consciousness, but then you don't have necessarily the power to reshape that created um, word depending on your mind. So based on, on your mind and uh, what you think and how you use, you utilize your, your mind. So yeah, in the law of attraction, we also have, as James was saying before, the idea of mind over matter, that mind comes first and matter comes later. So that everything that we hold in our mind, well, not everything, but uh, the things that we hold over and over, that we attach emotions to, um, will be attracted in their, um, the, the, like, the, the, the likes of them, of our thoughts and our emotions will be attracted in our life. So in this case, mind has a, um, yeah, has more power than matter has. And we can even say that in this case, like matter is still quite seen as an inanimate object well of course it depends on how the law of attraction is interpreted but yeah there is the idea that mind comes first and also there is a first person narrative i'd say i'd argue uh, because when you um think that well uh, what is that you think or that you feel will be you will attract more of in your reality you are kind of focusing mainly on your own narrative and I wouldn't say exclude other people, but your focus is still kind of a first person narrative of the world. So the narrative uh, the person creates of the world tends to be more in the first person. And even when other people are involved or even encouraged to use the law of attraction, it still um, kind of underlies, at least in my personal view, um, the perception of multiple first-person narratives rather than a shared com communal narrative. So also, um, I find it uh, another thing that I wanted to address is what happens when paradigms clash and do they really? <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, I think that uh, it is interesting to, to see that uh, there are some cases where paradigms may clash and uh, for example, we have, we, we see this happen when 
we have a dominant theoretical framework or a dominant worldview, which is not in accordance to our personal, individually chosen worldview. So, for example, if you believe and practice in magic, you are not in accordance with the dominant um, theoretical framework, which is of a positivist nature and thinks that um, everything that cannot, that doesn't uh, fall under uh, the scrutiny of the five senses is not real and valid and verifiable as the things that we uh, can perceive and evaluate for the five senses. So what happens with magical practitioners is that in order to somewhat reconcile their individual worldview with the dominant worldview, they find a bridge in science. So never as with magical practitioners and magical communities, the interest in science has been so much key. Um, in the, for example, in the book that I'm citing here, The Scientification of Religion, um, uh, von Stuckert, he uh, actually uh, goes through a few esoteric and uh, pagan traditions which were born from the 1950s onward, which, ha which saw science having a key role in their development and birth or rebirth. So even here in the UK, Druidry was uh, able to get their recognition as religion, which is another thing, and it's pretty complicated to explain, but yeah, uh, they got the, um, uh, the, it was the Druid order, I think, but yeah, there is um, a Druid, a druid um, community which got the, uh, the recognition uh, as religion, thanks to a scholar who uh, interceded and sent um, a letter explaining why Druidry uh, can classify as a religion. And even with shamanism, shamanism was popularized by Carlos Castaneda and he was doing his PhD uh, when, uh, and, and that gave him uh, validity somehow. Michael Harner, who founded uh, Core Shamanism, he was an academic and an anthropologist himself. Also, Wicca, um, Gerald Gardner, when he founded Wicca, he was backing his claim of this, um, of this tradition uh, thanks to the works, the works of the Egyptologist Margaret Murray, which was at the time an academic. So, um, Never as in these kind of traditions, science and academic work has revealed to be very important to the development and uh, yeah, the, the rebirth and uh, the re-evaluation of these traditions. And my argument here is that this may be due to the fact that there are two worldviews clashing and somehow science works as a bridge and it bridges the two paradigms, the dominant one, which won't accept magic as existent, and the personal, individually chosen one, which um, is the one endorsed by people who practice magic. In fact, what uh, Peter Berger, a famous uh, sociologist of religion, said, um, this is, we tend to think that we live in, in the age of secularism, but actually he argues that we live in the age of pluralism. 
So it's not that our age is secular, it's that it is pluralist. So now you are not bound to follow the religion of your, uh, of your family or of the country you were born in, but you can embrace one or even multiple religious beliefs. And um, yeah, this kind of pluralism also reflects a pl a pluralism in worldviews and the fact that people can embrace multiple paradigms and that contradictions may occur and that maybe they are part of uh, the human uh, understanding and, perce and perception of the world. And as chaos, chaos magicians would say, and even Buddhists would say that, maybe non-contradiction is a rule of language and uh, a rule of our logical, deductive reasoning, but not necessarily a rule of reality. So, yeah, I think I, <laughs> I finished here and you will find the references in the info box. Now, if you have more questions, I'd be happy to to reply. <clears throat> Ariel says, I'd venture that the shared communal narrative is almost a collection of multiple first-person narratives. Every individual brings some or all of their narrative into the larger picture on some level. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, New Age can maybe be considered part of pluralism, if I got that right. Yes. I'd say that every religious belief at the moment is part of a of a, a pluralist yeah a pluralist society because you know centuries ago you had that every country had their own religion it wasn't even allowed in most cases I think to practice something different. Uh, do you plan on streaming regularly? I haven't decided yet. <laughs> I, I, I was just, um, I just wanted to see how, how this went and then decide from it what to do. Would you like to? Would you like me to stream regularly? Nocturnia says, this was really interesting. Thank you for the live lecture and discussion. Uh, will the live be saved? Um, yes, the, the live will be saved. In, actually, YouTube does it automatically, but it doesn't, as I, as I recall from the only other live stream that I've ever done, it wasn't um, immediate. So I saw the, the live stream posted the day after the live stream. But yeah, it will be on the channel. Uh, Atomic, uh, 
uh, asks, uh, which school of magic do you identify with or practice the most? I don't share my personal um, beliefs or practices, I'm sorry. Yes, more streaming. Nadia is happy with having more streamings. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know, Nadia. Countries around the Mediterranean Sea uh, tended to respect and share their religions, right? Like uh, with uh, Hermes Trismegistus. Yes and no. Um, it depends. Yet, uh, at the time of the Romans, there was more of a trend of including different religious beliefs rather than excluding them, which is the, which is um, what is argued by Marc Auger in the book Genie du Paganism, which unfortunately is not translated in English. But I talk about it in my video Demons in Paganism. Technically, science is an objective, it's intersubjective. Yeah, well, the, there is plenty of literature on the uh, failed attempt at objectivity by science. Uh, Thomas, hi, nice to see you. Uh, regular chatting streaming would be great. Yeah, and we also have our regular <laughs> chat and streaming in the Patreon community. I want more live streams, but I'm feeling a little bad for Angela having to deal with the delay. That must be maddening. Oh, James, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> acknowledging that. Yes, it is. Uh, it is just that I. Um, it, it's difficult for me to um, interact with you because it feels like I'm interacting live, but actually you are interacting with past Angela, like one, two minutes in the past. <laughs> Andrew says uh, that is what we do in the Inner Symposium. Yes, the Inner Symposium being the Patreon community. So, yeah, I guess if you don't have uh, any more questions, we can, uh, we can end the live stream here. But yeah, next week I will... Um, you will see an interview oh sorry i was yeah um Hal, uh, toberman says would you define pluralism as a different body of interpretations for one spiritual reality uh, like john hicks or something else um, well, pluralism can be defined in different ways. The way um, Peter Berger defines it, as um, as I as I explained, a pluralist set of religious systems. So um, the idea that now we don't have anymore one religion for each country or each family or each community, but every individual chooses according to their own preferences and inclinations. Uh, is Plato occult? Um, 
I guess that there, there are some esoteric components in ancient Greek philosophers. That would be another interesting thing to, to address. Actually, there are so many things. Sometimes people, um, like friends, people I, I know, <laughs> um, they ask me, aren't you afraid that you will run out of ideas? No, I'm afraid that I always run out of time, but never out of ideas. There are so many things that can be covered here on the channel, and I will be covering. Thanks to you guys supporting, um, supporting, supporting my channel. So, yeah, I guess that I can end the live stream here because at least from what I say, there aren't any more questions and hopefully they are not concealed. Uh, favorite Greek philosopher? I'm not sure. Maybe Plato or Pythagoras? Uh, okay. So um, I guess we are going to end the live stream here. Thank you all so very much for coming over. I really appreciate you spending your time with me here. And I really hope that this live stream was um, fun and educational at the same time, as I like to say, academic fun. So yeah, don't forget, both if you are watching the live stream now or if you are watching the video later, uh, don't forget to smash the like button, <laughs> subscribe to the channel, activate the notification bell so that you won't miss uh, a notification when I upload a new video, because you want to know, of course, when I do. And uh, as always, stay tuned for all the academic fun. Bye for now. Solo non so quando finisce la musica.